So on the podcast today, we're going to speak about the concept of evil and radical universalism, which actually radical universalism kind of has its birth within this concept of evil. And evil is a foreign concept actually to Eastern spirituality. And this is something a lot of people don't understand and don't consider when they read classical text, Indian texts. A lot of people project Abrahamic ideas onto Eastern spirituality. And this is actually how the concept of evil uh, got overlaid into Eastern spirituality in the first place. When, when the British occupied India, for example, they would translate the texts according to their own belief system. Now, what we all need to understand is when we are exploring a certain belief system, you have to come to the belief system a clean slate, right? You can't come with your own conditioning and your own beliefs of what things should be, right? So when they started translating things like the Gita and the Upanishads and this and that back in the 1800s and even before that, the British, when, when they started doing that, they were looking for the concept of evil in these texts. And that concept, it doesn't exist, right? So like they look at the concept of Maya, so the illusion of reality, and a lot of people, well, a lot of British thought that they, oh, that must be what evil is. Like this, this is what evil is in, in, in Hinduism. But as you know, Maya only means the, like the illusion or the measurement of reality, so the, the misperception of reality. So you're not seeing Brahman, the ultimate reality, as it truly is. You're seeing the world of duality. So that, that's neither, we could say, neither good or bad. It's just an incorrect perception, incorrect way of seeing, right? So we had that phenomenon in, well, during when the British were in India, and so they were translating things like Maya as evil and so forth and so on. But when you look into all Indian languages, they don't have a, like a word in their vocabulary for evil. It doesn't mean that they don't have words to explain negative things and so forth and so on, but they don't have a word for evil. It's like if we were to say Genghis Khan is an evil man, for an Indian it's difficult for them to translate that. It's not so easy to say Genghis Khan is an evil man. And... This goes back to the cultural evolution of the, especially of Europe, as opposed to uh, India. And, and we could also relate this to um, China as well. So, you know, obviously they have, in the Abrahamic faiths, you have the, the concept of evil, right? And so you live one life and you can, you know, be bound to sin, you can commit sin, and you follow this one road and you have these commandments and these rules, right, to to live by. But then when you go into India, and India is a completely different kettle of fish, it's uh, culturally different and the concepts are completely different. So there is not one life, there's numerous lives, yes. and life is not, there are no commandments and no rules, so to speak, to live life by. You are bound to your karma. You are bound to the actions that you perform in your life. But it's more of a checks and balances, you know, reality. Like To make things even. To make to, to even things out, right? So it's not that the Hindus or the Buddhists or the Jains or even the Taoists would say that people don't do stupid things. Of course they do. But the concept of evil, like something within someone who is intrinsically evil, like saying that from birth... For example, Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or these people were intrinsically evil is not the way an Easterner would see it. 
they became the way they are due to their environment and their life circumstances. They became that negative person, so to speak, the person who was committing evil, right? So this idea that like, like you know, like there's ideas of demons and this and that in, in the Abrahamic faiths and stuff like that, that doesn't exist in Eastern spirituality. Sure, there are, the, you know, the demigods and, the, you know, there's, there's the hellish realms and stuff like that in Buddhism, but these are more related to psychological states of places we live within our mind but we can all elevate out of that because that's not our intrinsic nature. Yes, the fundamental difference between Abrahamic religions to opposed uh, to um, the Eastern spirituality is that Abrahamic religions are based on monotheistic um, concept, which is there's on, only one God mm. who, who is uh, uh, above you and watches you and judge you what you do, mm. whether that's good or bad, yes. like this. So it's, there's a kind of clear cut between mm. God and what's not God. Mm. And they uh, define the meaning of evil as absence of God yes. in Christianity, in Abrahamic religions, I should say. Yeah, yeah. So that means because the existence of God is so uh, clear cut, Absence of God becomes also clear cut, mm. which means whatever, whoever that's against uh, that man, the God mm. says, then that's evil. Yes, it's very black and white. Black and white, yeah. Black and white, clear cut, good and bad. It's very easily, it can be very easily judged, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, as you and I know, like, well, Hinduism is the best example that how many gods there are. Yeah just thousands and thousands of um, avatars that they worship, right? Mm -hmm. So it's much more polytheistic so that they believe that there is nothing that isn't God. Mm, yeah, exactly. That's how they believe. So I see the clear distinctive difference is there. Yeah. That's why the, the, the point of view on, on world in general has to be completely different. Yes. So that, like you uh, mentioned about Genghis Khan, and also people say, like, how do they um, judge someone like Hitler, for mm, example, mm, mm, mm. more recent mm. times? So they wouldn't call him he's an evil mm. because there is no such concept in the Hinduism. Mm. But then, so they see everything as God. Mm. And um, something like individuals like those people are mm. just a phenomenon of the of this world of Maya. Mm. That's how they saw it. Mm. It's not anything like we need to uh, make a conclusion which is bad or which is good mm. because that's not where they're coming from. Yeah. Every there is nothing that isn't God. Mm -hmm. so everything is God. Everything is Shiva. What they always say. Mm -hmm. So. There is a clear different point of view, so that actually that makes it kind of inevitable to be in conflict. Mm. The each point of uh, those two point of view is clearly different, mm. so that yeah, conflict is inevitable somewhat. Yeah, yeah. And what people don't consider is, and what an Easterner would explain, or what a Hindu would explain, is that, for example, with someone like Adolf Hitler or Genghis Khan. 
they were the outcome of the belief that evil exists. They were the outcome of the belief in the absence of God. Do you see? They were part of that system of belief. So Hindus believe everything is Shiva, everything is Brahman. So there is no such, like the idea, con the concept of the absence of God is, doesn't exist. So that way of thinking, Western thinking into Hindu and, and, and Taoist and Buddhist and Jain thinking doesn't compute properly. And that's why we've had over recent times interesting adaptations of Hinduism, such as Ishkon, like the Hare Krishna movement and this and that, that seem very, we could say, close to like a Christian version of Hinduism, but and, and, and a lot of ideas of evil within, within uh, that particular sect. But when you look at traditional uh, Sanatana Dharma, there's none of that exists, that concept of like, you know, um, like there's some sort of evil force. You are all you are all the product of your own karma. You know what I mean? Like that's what we have to live with. And because there is no such thing as the absence of God, you can only live God. You know what I mean? And everything um, is the result of that, right? So uh, Hindus would say, for example, Genghis Khan and Hitler have they have a lot, a lot of karmic debt that they have to, that they have to repay. You know what I mean? And whatever whatever that may be, you know what I mean. So that's kind of the crux of it. So they were a victim, not a victim. They were hypnotized into believing that there's such a thing as evil and in the uh, the absence of God. So that they were the byproduct. Now we want now we want to reiterate here that it's not to say that that Eastern spirituality is better than Western spirituality, but because each tradition is different. But if you're interested in Eastern spirituality, you can't come to Eastern spirituality with a Western way of thinking. You have to come with a clean slate because these ideas of uh, God are completely different. These ideas of soul. I, I had an email through the week from a young lady saying she watched a video talking about some guy speaking about the soul in Eastern spirituality, but in the sense of how we understand it in the Western world. And she asked me, like, is that, should we be, like, looking at it? Or isn't the soul, the way that they think of the soul in uh, Hinduism completely different? And of course it is, you know what I mean? Like, so when you think of the soul in Hinduism, you, you're talking really about the jivatman, so, like, the mixture of the persona and the actual undifferentiated consciousness, the atman, which is connected to brahman. So when we think of soul, we, we think of persona, right? We think of that within us that is kind of like that sort of uniqueness from a Western perspective. That translated over it would be similar to Jiva Atman, like the Jiva, the persona system, mixed with the Atman, which you know is what is born. The Jiva is what kind of hangs on uh, the, the Atman life after life until we cleanse all that out, right? And so uh, I asked her, I said, no, I, mean, I, I sort of I mentioned to her that that's completely false. And the thing is that you, what what you need to remember when we when we look at Atman, for example, <clears throat> undifferentiated consciousness in Hinduism, in Vedanta, is that that's that that's the concept is nowhere in the Abrahamic faiths. It's nowhere, literally. And so, if you were a Hindu reading Christian scriptures or or the Quran or something like this, the you can't also project your idea of Atman onto those things. It's its own tradition, right? So you have to let it be what it is. But for what we're, to what we're doing here is we, 
constantly always exploring Eastern spirituality and the benefits of Eastern spirituality. And there, there cannot be this idea of this radical universalism, you know, within, uh, because there isn't, right? This is a phenomenon that started hundreds of years ago when people started translating Eastern scriptures according to their own Christian beliefs. Usually Christians were, were, were translating, right? So, and then the soul got warped into their version of the soul and then, you know what I mean, Atman became Holy Spirit and all of this stuff. And it's like, no, 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 no. this is all not even related. They're, con they're, they're culturally different concepts. Yeah, what we need to definitely understand is that um, each religion creates this strong characteristics of the culture, mm. yeah. of the area where it has a different um, religion. Mm. Like for example, when we look at Islam, mm. especially in Middle East or Indonesia and places like that, they have strong um, characteristics of their own culture. Different. And like just the culture meaning the lifestyle and the way they uh, dress and where, what they eat and everything. Mm -hmm. Like all whole lifestyle is different. And they're also different from the uh, far Western countries, basically uh, the, the strong uh, Christian Christian-based countries, and, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, they those people have a clear distinction over what's positive and negative, and mm. what's good or bad, and they their whole um, way of thinking, their framework is based on that. Yeah. And whereas somewhere like India or Nepal, mm. place like that, is yeah, because they have a strong Hindu tradition, the, the way they eat, the way they. Um, dress, the way they think, everything is uh, completely different. So that it's a big mistake to translate uh, you know, traditional uh, scripts, yeah. scriptures in, from where you sit. Yeah, exactly. That is a clear mistake and that will bring, again, the conflict, conflict yeah. between the two different minds of understanding things. Exactly, and that that's uh, that's kind of an inevitable problem to arise. Yeah, when they started translating, you know, a good example of this is when they started translating, you know, the the the, the Vedas and the Upanishads and stuff like that. They were thinking that they were confused, right? Because like you've got Ishvara, you got Brahman, you got you know, you got you got Shiva, Vishnu, Brahma, you got Ganesha, you got I mean, you know, a multitude. So they would just put, like, they would think of God as in a, in a sense of Brahman, the ultimate reality. And as you and I know, and as obviously every Hindu would know, is that Brahman is n not, because God, from an Abrahamic sense, is kind of a personal God, because that God judges and either blesses you or, you know, you have to live by the certain commandments of that God, but Brahman's an ultimate reality. It's undifferentiated. It's impersonal. It doesn't care if you're good or bad because that's <clears throat> that's a subjective viewpoint. Good or bad is a human viewpoint, not not the viewpoint of Brahman. So when they translated those scriptures, they should have thought of God as in the sense of probably Ishvara because Ishvara is kind of the level of the personal God. So, I mean, but it's even difficult, right? Because then <clears throat> when you think of Ishvara, you think of either Shiva or Vishnu that level but then from that level vishnu and shiva are also just representatives of brahman right so <laughs> you know what i mean so it's it's do you see how it's so difficult that you can't 
just those concepts don't relate. You know, a Hindu would would probably use the term God in referring to Brahman if they were speaking English, but they wouldn't think about it in the way that uh, someone who was in the Abrahamic faith would think about it. Like, because they don't they don't feel like that they should be blessed or that they uh, are going to be are going to commit sin. These things don't relate to them because it's just karma. There's many lives, and you've got to repay the debt if you are acting negatively and incurring harm on other people, right? So they don't think about like that. They're busy living. Yes. They're busy living. They're not concerned about if they're doing right or wrong. You know, it's like, you know, that can become a certain psychopathy within Abrahamic faith when you're kind of like paranoid about if you're doing right or wrong according to the so-called will of God. It's almost like this, I think, that uh, under a Christian belief system, uh, individuals are subjected to this God, mm. the man, mm. so that um, everything you do is going to be judged by God. Yeah. Right. Mm. So almost like you don't have an individual um, ability to... Um, to think for yourself, mm, basically, mm, mm, mm. because whatever you make mistake, you make a, a con- you confess and mm. you, you're forgiven. Mm. So you kind of you're not taking uh, somewhat accountability, accountability for your yeah. own action, right? Mm, mm. You uh, if you if everything uh, happens good for you and everything is going well, then you thank God. Mm. And if everything is bad and you do a, uh, mis- you b- misbehave at situations, then you confess and you're forgiven. Mm. It's like uh, you are somewhat not quite um, independent uh, human being, yeah. I think. But, but whereas in the Hindu tradition, is a there's only balance. Mm. Brahman keeps things, everything in harmony, that means in balance. Mm, exactly. Like in Taoism, yin and yang, yeah. that keeps everything in balance. That's Brahman's job. That, yeah. That's why Brahman exists. Mm-hmm. Right? So that uh, Brahman's there and individuals have to take your, you take your own accountability. Mm-hmm. You create your own karma. Yeah. Right? You you uh, you reap what you sow basically. Yeah. So it's up to you to choose whether you want to do this way or you want to do that way. Mm. It's up to you. There is no good and bad, no. but whatever you did, it's a uh, it's karma. Karma literally, but the action. Yeah. So that's what you will get basically. Yeah. So it's a completely. I think that way of thinking gives you more sovereignty somewhat, mm-hmm. and. Um, much more uh, somewhat independent for your own um, decision yeah. and the choice that you make. Definitely. Yeah, because yeah, you have to eventually pay the debt. Yeah. It gives you responsibility, right? Karma gives you responsibility, whether you believe it or not. Yeah. But if you do believe in that sort of system, that'll give you accountability. Like your actions will have to be harmonious with the way of the Tao. They have to be in harmony with the way of the world. They can't be out of sync with that. There's not that there's such an absence of God. It's just that they fall out of sync with the way of the world, and you you incur harm on other jivas. And the, you know, 
again, another thing with what you were saying is that in the Eastern spiritual path, the individual doesn't exist, right? The individual is a, an aspect of the world that you eventually have to rise above or you have to clean it out of your mind. And then you rise above karma because then you are at the place of the Atman. You're at that place where it's undifferentiated and you're connected with Brahman. And then when this vessel, this localization of consciousness, this equipment, when this dies, then you will merge with that and you won't come back as a jiva. And this is, again, another difference within, you know, the Abrahamic faiths because you are an individual. You have an individual soul. Um, but that soul's connected to God, but you are still an individual. You aren't God. And see, this is one of the fundamental differences, right? In Hinduism, you are God, but not in the sense of a personal God. You deep down are Atman, which is connected to Brahman. So this idea of Jason and Guy Young and everyone listening is, is an illusion. And when we invest in the illusion, we suffer karma. Do you see? When you're constantly invested in the illusion of this individual, you can only produce karma because then you are self-interested. You are out there trying, you're out there for yourself and you are incurring harm on other people and also on yourself. You are, you are in a sense in a, in a field of suffering constantly. And so that's a, another fundamental difference, right? A fundamental difference between uh, the Eastern paths and the Western paths. And so... That also lends into uh, evil as well, right? Like, because uh, an individual who is self-interested can uh, can commit evil deeds, right? I mean, they can do things that are self-interested and from an animalistic state of mind. But when you look at it from the Eastern spiritual paths, like they don't think about it in the sense that it's evil. They just think about it in the sense of checks and balances. So, he, okay, that that guy's going to have to pay you know, big time, you know what I mean? And usually the, uh, as we know in India, the punishment for certain things can be... Yeah, pretty brutal and obvious and quite immediate quite immediate, sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it is like that. And so we have to be very careful when we, when we start to superimpose these Western cultural concepts onto an Eastern framework. I'd like to just make this clear, I think, that um, like concept of uh, what's bad in the Christian tradition uh, um, translates under, in Hinduism is more like a aspect of the absolute consciousness. Yeah. Like they don't see these things as bad or unnecessary. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's kind of a phenomenon of a absolute consciousness. It's kind of it's part of it. Mm. It's uh, they don't see it as bad thing. It's just one aspect of uh, human uh, absolute consciousness. Yes. Just like there's yang and yin. There's all these things to make a harmony and balance in nature. In the same, it works the same yep. in the. Uh, absolute consciousness level mm. as well and that it, maya uh, yeah for example concept of maya is an, it's an illusion mm-hmm. illusion uh, whatever illusion that you think of but the illusion itself is not anything bad or it's against you mm. it's just one aspect of that 
ultimate reality. Mm. It's what people need to <clears throat> understand it as well. Well, that's why certain scholars in India have said if they were to explain their view of Adolf Hitler, they would be classed as anti-Semitic because the Hindu view is what you are saying. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That these things happen. This is, but it's still an aspect of Shiva, right? But um, so they would be classed as anti-Semitic if they if they explained the way that they see the world and the, and the way that they see what had happened. And that's actually it's it's interesting because look at the way that they dealt with the British occupation. That 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 gives you an example of the the, the strength of the Hindus, right? The, the the way that they see the world, even when the Muslims invaded India, right? So in both cases, they've dealt with it, you know, tr tremendously when you yes. think about it. Usually when, other, when, when another country or another culture or race uh, is enslaved and gets, um, you know, gets taken over, there's usually a blowback effect. Yeah. But when you see what you see with Hinduism, especially, you don't really see that. Of course, you see a few people pissed off but in general they see the world differently so they get on with it oh that was just a phenomenon that that british thing and it's been and gone it's, it's over now it's time to move on and uh apart from the uh the infiltration of british beliefs into india and so forth and so on it, it pretty much has moved on yeah so there is um conflict inevitably when uh, there's a strong concept of good and bad or like angel and evil, whatever you want to call it. So that kind of conflict is inevitable. Whereas, um, yeah, in the, under Hindu belief system, there's no such thing. Mm. That's why how they dealt with those um, uh, crises in history, they overcame quite peacefully. Of course, there was... Um, yeah, fights and you know, mm -hmm. like that kind of stuff uh, existed. But now they're pretty harmonious. They mm. live with uh, one another, and they accept the difference between Islam and uh, Hindus. And uh, they, I think, they kind of uh, mend that relationship really well in the end. It very uh, big scale, national scale, yeah, yeah. Mm. whereas. As we know, Abrahamic religions, so just because there is a strong sense of God, so mm. there is a strong sense of evil. Mm. So that conflict is kind of inevitably going on. Mm, yep. it, it, it'll continuously happen as long as there is that strong concept mm -hmm. because there's just a clear line through between what's good and bad. Yes. And... Again, we know this, uh, Christian Murdy talks about this a lot, the way you think that what's good and bad creates the violence itself. Yep. And it's obviously in history tells over and over again, it repeating itself. And obviously right now what's happening in the Western countries uh, is also the evidence of that, I think. Yes. Well, it, again, it highlights what you're highlighting there is you're... you're the fundamental difference is inclusiveness versus exclusiveness, you see. So in the West, we live in this very exclusive reality. So my thing, that's their thing. One God, my God is right, your God is wrong. You know, we have this sense of opposition. 
where India and the East in general has been a very inclusive reality. You know, you look at India's history, actually, and you look at some of the, I forget what actual date it was, but when the, the Jews were going through a tough time and then India gave them safe haven in Kerala, that's why you have a Jewish population down in Kerala and South India at uh, these days, because they gave them safe haven. And, and those Jewish people are very, actually, very respectful to the Hindu tradition because they, they honor that, hey man, they really, they went out there for us and they helped us out where they could, no, one, no one else did, right, um, at that time. And also the recent example could be uh, Tibetan refugees, for 100%, example. 100%, 100%. We know, we've witnessed with our own bare eyes mm, that mm. there's strong uh, Tibetan um, refugee communities of business, especially in northern India. Yeah. And um, they, what, they were well taken care of uh, by government. Yeah, and uh, the Indian government allow them to keep their tradition and keep their um, practice going mm. and keep their bond strong so that in a sense that it provides uh, more, much more diverse cultural uh, things within India as well. That is why the Dalai Lama residences in uh, Dharamsala. Exactly. And um, that's, well, look, India themselves have enough problems I think, mm. but they were always, they kept their open heart mm. to those people to take them in, to give them shelters and food and taking care of them, mm. like you mentioned the Jewish people, and as well as for um, Tibetan refugees as well. 100%. We look at that time back in the 50s, why did no one, why did no other country want to, want to touch Dalai Lama? It was a political thing, right, with China, because the whole world is always tiptoeing around China, right? Tiptoeing around making them angry or, you know, or pissing them off. And India, as you know, India's history with China, India have, a, have an inclusive spiritual mentality that is diametrically opposed to communism and Marxism that you see in China because China were hell-bent, obviously, on destroying Taoism and Buddhism and any, any faith, Islam, like they're doing with the Uyghur people now in Xinjiang where they're just locking Muslims up for no reason and the Western media can't get there, right? That would never happen in India, right? Because it's a, it's a, the whole foundation of the country is built on spirituality and, and built on this idea of inclusiveness. It's not built on an ideology of Marxism, you know, and this is the dangers of, of those sorts of ideologies infiltrating any country, really, you know what I mean? Because it, it lends into what happened in, in China, especially in the 50s, where a lot of the Tibetan monks were, were killed for you know, obviously no reason. Dalai Lama had to uh, you know, migrate to India. But it's interesting that India was the one that stepped up, you know what I mean? Because India also know that to, the Tibetan tradition, apart from Bon, but the Tibetan Buddhist tradition has its roots in India. You know what I mean? The evolution of Buddhism up into the Himalayas is what Tibetan Buddhism became, and, and it's, and it's uh, intermingling with the Bon tradition of Tibet. And so they are very mindful of that too, you know what I mean? And, but it's always this idea of taking care of your brothers and sisters, you know what I mean? It's this, it's this inclusiveness that everything is Brahman. So when you have this idea of everything is Brahman, that can contribute to what we would 
probably think of as world peace, right? But when we have an exclusive reality when there is uh, where there is other, then that contributes to the concept of evil. That they, oh, they they are against the way that I do things, my agenda, my beliefs. They must be evil, or they they are in opposition to my own perspective of the world. So we ought to eradicate them in in any in any way we can, and that becomes the fo- that becomes the central mentality of especially of the developed world where the central mentality of the developed world is it's constantly built on separation whereas in uh, eastern traditions eastern spiritual traditions there's no such thing as separation the separation is only born when you believe in the sense of jiva this sense of that you exist you know Zhuangzi talks about this in in Taoism right Zhuangzi says when there is no more this and that you reside in the still point of the Tao. You are at the center of the still point of the Tao, he actually says. You become a focal point for the Tao to express itself. That one non-dual pure state of consciousness that is animating all life and guides our life. You know what I mean? I mean, allows the flow of the life to move through your consciousness. And so, Zhuangzi would say that the job would be to get rid of the this and that idea because that is actually what contributes to the concept of evil and the concept of other. Is this idea of this and that? There is no other. There is no. None of that exists, actually. I think there is this a uni. I want to. I want to call it universal era around the world. Mm. Is to think that the, the, your version of belief and your version of uh, what's right it, is universally right for mm, everybody. Mm, 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 mm. No matter that's Christian belief or Hindu belief or Islamic belief. Well, that's how Hitler became Hitler, right? Yes. We all have this um, idea that what I know, what I know, Mm -hmm. what I believe Mm -hmm. is right for everybody. Mm -hmm. I know when I actually verbally say this, it sounds ridiculous, Mm -hmm. but we all do it. Yeah, of course we do. This is the problem. And what people say... Belief is what the subjective truth yes. is true to you mm. may not be true to other people. No. So that's what fundamentally we need to understand that like there is a different conditioning, different cultural um, difference and all that. Mm. And so we can we can well, we all need to try to get away from that conditioning, yes, right? Yes. But as long as we acknowledge that we are conditioned, we are, we should be willing to understand other people's conditioning as well. Yes. In a way. Mm. That, that's, the, that's the only day we can uh, come to, um, be, we can meet in the halfway, yes. right? Mm. Otherwise, we have the world just uh, living in constant conflict. Yeah. That mutual understanding is what's really important. And that's to say that how much we lack that open-minded attitude. Well, this comes back to what we've been talking about the whole time. You can't go into other cultures and this and that and project your own idea of how they should be and, and, and try to see their life from the way that you see it. It can only produce conflict. The way that we should actually communicate with each other is like what you said, Everyone has their own subjective truth, right? In some sense. Some may have less than others. Others who have a strong sense of subjective truth are obviously fanatics and people like that. But most people in general sit in the gray area where they have a sort of a subjective truth, but they're not a fanatic, but they're also not like um, 
It's not that they can't change. Most people can change and can see things differently, but they're not exposed to different information. So most people sit in that area and um, if we come and if we communicate with each other in a sense that we understand everyone has their own subjective truth, we can actually get along much better. Like for example, when people do business with particularly with Chinese or Indians, they have a real tough time because you know Chinese and Indians do their do it their way. You know what I mean. You ask any, especially you ask any Western business man or woman who goes to India to do business, and they're just like, "Oh my God, do I have to go back and do business there again?" You know what I mean? Because it's constantly the the Indian the Indian head wobble. You and I we love it because it's like you know you're keeping your, your cards close to your chest. You know what I mean? <laughs> you yeah. don't, don't don't reveal everything, but. Yeah, well, there's a clear difference that where Western-minded people would, um, especially in the business field, that their goal is to have mutual agreement on um, profit, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas as we know that the Eastern traditions is a bit different. Yes, of course, the profit is important, mm -hmm. but what's more important to them is that, like that, this relationship, that mm -hmm. impression they get f with each other. And the relationship going forward is going to be looking good or not. Like yeah, yeah. That's what actually makes uh, them decision, isn't mm -hmm. it? Over uh, numbers and figures. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago, right, on yeah. the podcast where, you know, the Eastern way is more contextual and it's more about relationships. Yeah. So if they have a good bond with someone, they'll do business with them. I know that that sounds, from a Western perspective, it sounds completely bonkers because, it, because it's all about facts and figures, right, in the West. It's all about how is this going to benefit our company or myself, what profit or what value and so forth and so on. But uh, in, the, in the East, it's more about like, obviously the, the business has to be good, but that doesn't necessarily going to, that, that's not a deal. That's not a deal even if the, if the deal, if the business is good, it has yeah. to be an emotional relationship yeah. with that particular person or company, and then we do business together. You know what I mean? Like, so it can be very frustrating for Westerners when they go there because they don't understand that dynamic, right? Because that's that's their cultural differences. And see, this is what, you, like, what you were saying. If we understand these cultural differences, we can work with each other a lot better instead of projecting our own our own way of seeing the world onto the other onto another culture because what we do see especially through cognitive science is that like what you said through subjective truths we have different worldviews so the worldviews are different right so for example we were talking about god before the 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 god of the abrahamic faiths doesn't actually exist somewhat in hinduism especially and also not in buddhism and jainism and also Taoism. they don't exist in those four traditions right those four um, we could say four other main traditions in in the East. It doesn't exist in them, and so you then have to see the world a little bit their way. You know, how often have you and I been in India, and Westerners have come there thinking that their way of thinking relates to the to the Indian way of thinking? And it doesn't. It doesn't. You know what I mean? Like it that doesn't relate to them. You have to see the world their way. And if you don't, you're going to suffer pretty, pretty well, quickly. Well, that's why we, we know so many people, we know so many people who've been to India, some group of people who absolutely hate it. Hate it, yeah. Because they just don't get it. They just can't get 
navigate through mm. your daily life. Mm. But some group of people would just be like, they just fall in love with it. They just can't get enough of India. Yeah. It is absolutely, they just, yeah, we, we, we want to live there. Yeah. Yeah. It's clearly, um, it, it makes a two different um, group yeah. of people. Yeah. yeah. You have to have a very, almost like a Taoist mind when you go to different cultures. You have to have that free and easy wandering of Zhuangzi, mm -hmm. where you can just flow in and, and, and see it for what it is as opposed to how you think it should be. How many times have we taken friends to India and then their instant reaction is from their own cultural perspective? Why do they do things this way here? Just chill, man. Just chill. <laughs> just let it. Just let them do what they do. Why are you coming here like a missionary like a Western missionary telling them how to live and, and how to think. This is how the world evolved. You either appreciate it or you get to step in. You get on a plane and you get out of here. You know what I mean? And numerous times we've taken friends there and like we've been in Varanasi and we've been in a nice cafe or something and there's a mural of Shiva and I remember one friend going, what are these, who are these blue guys like this? And it's like, <sighs> you, don't even, you don't even know where to start. You know what I mean? Like, who are these blue guys? I mean, this is not James Cameron here. This is not Avatar, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there's just too much to explain. But, I mean, if you have that mentality, then you're not seeing the world as it truly is. And it's, 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 isn't it ironic? Because the, the role of Eastern spirituality is always to see the world as it truly is. So when we look at Vedanta, when we look at Taoism and, 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 and Buddhism, uh, it, it's about coming back to that, getting out of that sort of a sense of even out of the subjective truth and just seeing the reality as it truly is. Know this and that, not bound by any belief system or agenda and just seeing the world as it is. And then you, you are like, in some sense, like the stereotypical yogi. This is why in the yogic tradition, they never stay in a place for too long. Usually they give themselves about three, Five days, they might stay somewhere and then they move on. Because the reason they do that is because that they understand that the human psyche has a tendency to pick up the habits and conditioning of that certain environment that it's involved in. And so you and I have actually experienced this because we are ardent travelers and we've traveled a lot. And we have kept ourselves away from, uh, what do we say, a certain isolated communal way of thinking. Um, but... It's not that we don't resonate with certain ways of thinking. Like we could live in Bodhgaya forever, for example, or we could live in Thiruvannamalai or Kathmandu forever, and you and I wouldn't, <clears throat> we wouldn't be bothered at all. But because that's kind of where we sit, because we love Eastern spirituality, we love meditation, we love following the path of liberation. That's what you and I, that's our bread and butter. But for some people, it's not. So for, for like a stereotypical yogi, they have to keep moving on because that keeps their mind out of that zone. You know what I mean? So, and especially when we look at Western societies, because in Western societies, a lot of Western societies are materialistically driven and they are based on this idea of uh, self and other, self and God, this, this distinction, the separation between things. And so then you can, you develop a lot of bad habits because you develop self-interested habits, you know. As you and I know, like spending numerous amounts of time in India, when one thing that people know when they go to India is, that, is there is a very strong sense of community in India. Sure, there is, uh, there can be violence between Hindus and Muslims and 
all of these things. Uh, but in general, you know, that's a very small pocket of people uh, in conflict with each other. In general, people are like what you said before. People are shanti. People are getting along with their life peacefully and harmoniously. And there's a greater sense of community, you know. And it's, it's overwhelming because you and I have been there so many. Again, I think that comes down to their strong um, belief in their Hindu traditions. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, in the Hindu Hindu tradition, you don't exist mm. as an individual. No. You don't exist. And whether they consciously acknowledge or not, um, they live under that tradition for entire their life. Mm. So they clearly acknowledge that uh, there is Shiva. Mm. There is a, that ultimate God, ultimate reality is mm. there. And that existence uh, takes care of your life as long as you um, you act out of that place, right? Mm. There is no strong sense of me or desire. Mm. And they don't identify with um, any kind of um, material possession mm. because maybe they don't have much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so they they don't have that kind of a concept in their mind. No, no. Whereas in the Western country or the developed countries in the in Asian Asian mm. countries as well, that we have accumulated this so much of these um, material possessions and status and names mm. and things mm. like that, and we start to identify that the external ident- identification with the just being me okay. internal we inter- internalize these things yeah. these yeah. concepts so that we ha- we um, over time we develop this str- strong idea of i mm. which is actually an illu- illusion mm. so that then we suffer from it miseries or that all come on that's all just byproduct that all come for free buy one get one free <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah we need to uh, the job is to detect detached from that kind of identification mm. and again um, in that uh, trying not to try in Edward Stillingland's book mm. I remember saying that how uh, we like to go to the new places mm-hmm. in the very um, yeah like a cognitive science way mm. that he would say the reason why we like we attracted to new things is because unconsciously when you are staying in one place for too long whatever that was new at the first time slowly becomes in the background in your mm. mind and it registered as in um in a subconscious realm and it, it subconsciously you know what to expect already mm, in that yeah. place mm. right so that you unconsciously like you said picking up uh, unnecessary habits yes. right you overeating or just being lazy or wasting your time and but if you don't acknowledge it consciously you will keep doing it mm. right mm. and even if it wasn't part of your character it'll become your character unless yeah. you recognize it exactly right? so that's the the danger of being a place for too long 
So, but well, right now everybody is in a very stationary place and yeah. can't go anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> but more the situation becomes difficult. Actually, mm. uh, you can make your practice stronger as well. At the same time, you can make this as an opportunity. You can explore uh, different things, different interests, and you can, you know, try different things. So try to um, internally. Mm, evaluate yourself mm -hmm. always and upgrading with the new ideas and stay stay creative in general yeah well sometimes these situations when you're stuck in a place like in a stationary place you know beyond your own will yeah. it's a great time for practice a great time for meditation a great time for contemplation and also a great time to reevaluate some of those habits and beliefs and that, that that you probably have accumulated from the society that you live in you know a lot of most people live the way that you were explaining most people have just live in a place forever the same place and never leave you know it's it's i know we see a lot of people traveling and this and that but it's very rare that people are, are, are traveling as a lifestyle they might be just traveling for a holiday and something like this but they're not sort of living like yogis so they have a tendency to become their environment you know there is that thing in cognitive science where you, where you naturally become the environment that you're in because subconsciously we're constantly picking up all of the subtle tendencies and habits of the environment and the mentality of that environment and then sometimes when you sit back at home late at night and you think about your own life you think why am i behaving like that you know that's not really in my nature yeah, you kind of regret you regret that you've done exactly yeah. exactly so that's a really good time then when you if you do pinpoint that to to reevaluate obviously it's it's all well and good if you can do like what Terence McKenna said, where you can just drop yourself in Ghana and rewrite your, your, your subconscious disc. But we don't live in that present moment because we can't even get on a plane. So, you know, we have to look at our lives and actually do that deep spiritual work and get into those samskaras that have actually those subconscious subliminal imprints we have and try to like, you know, shake it up, shake it up <laughs> and also transform and release those Samskaras, those vasanas, those habits and tendencies were picked up. Because otherwise you'll just keep, in some sense, producing and, and acting in a way that the environment is dictating and not the way that you are. That's right. And in some sense that doesn't contribute to a harmonious world because if you are acting in this manner, then you're probably going to come into conflict with other people, other individuals, and also other cultures. Yeah, we need to have more conscious effort. Yes. It? More, we need to yeah, invest into that type of um, yeah practice. You need to invest yourself to be awake mm. at, as long as possible. Yeah. Well, this is what bodhicitta is in Buddhism. It's, it's that if you have bodhicitta, it means you have that almost spiritual will to to practice and to to come to the eye to become awake like the buddha you know you, you have that spiritual muscle about yourself yeah i wanted to come back to what you were talking about uh, earlier just before about um you know there's no individual and in giving yourself away to to brahman something much greater than yourself but this is this is a an aspect of the eastern paths right surrender is an is a is a pure aspect of 
the eastern paths you have to surrender to that which is greater you know usually the way we evolve as as individuals as people is we usually surrender to our parents and then you know then we become adults and then we have a sense of control right where we have a sense of sovereignty and we and we act in a certain way right and so in the west there's always this focus on that as an individual we have control of our lives and we do to a certain degree a certain degree we have control right i can control picking up this cup right now and but you usually can't control the events that are going to happen in your life and the relationships you're going to meet and the jobs you're going to get or lose and you know life has its way you know if you've lived enough you know that life has its own its own agenda and it doesn't equate to your own individual agenda and so that's the hindu way of thinking right life has its own way and subjectively it uh, it doesn't care what you think because there is no you you know so the whole process is to surrender to brahman don't want to say god but to brahman and allow the Tao to do its thing allow the way of the universe to use you in ever which way it is and in that way in surrendering you 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 are not falling for this hypnosis of the jiva of the individual because it's in the hypnosis and this is why it's part and parcel with what we're talking about it's in the hypnosis of the jiva that things like evil and that or, or, or what we perceive as evil can occur you know but when you surrender you're just allowing life to be as it will and you have and you have a trust that Oh, things will work out. It'll work out. Like even in this situation right now, right? Everyone's bunkered up in home and, and their life is restricted to a certain degree. You have to understand that this too will pass. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it will pass. But that's also the mentality of a lot of Eastern traditions is that this you have to surrender and, and have trust in this situation, um, in any situation. That's their, that's their mentality, right? I mean, you don't want to be stupid. You don't want to just sit there and if you're starving and, oh, I trust that a hamburger is just going to turn up. You know, don't be foolish. But, like, I think everyone who is intelligent understands what we're talking about, you know, so. Yeah, I think surrender in a sense that um, surrendering to our own desire mm. in a psychological desire, yeah. that's the surrender that we are talking about and also i think the from surrendering yourself is you kind of cultivate that immense um power i think within you yep. like that that itself is like uh, energetically it carries a lot of weight yeah. instead of um go out and just you know trying to conquer and you know yeah of course yeah, yeah. do all these things well, in the Eastern traditions, one of the main central tenets is you need to give your power away of control to gain the kind of power and control you always wanted. Now, that's insane that you, in giving yourself away and letting go of this idea of yourself, of this individual, that Tao or the Brahman will, you'll become an aperture for that to express itself in the, in the world. And there won't be anyone, no I, to claim, oh, this is who I am and, and what I experience. You know, you need to become the, 
I am Brahman without the I, you know, this idea. And so that's one of the interesting elements of Eastern spirituality because if, in giving that away, you get the power you always wanted. But it's ironic because in the West, we're taught that we ought to go out there and grab the reality and own this life because you know why? There's only one life, you see? But when you just allow and you surrender to life, you know why you do that? Because you're going to live again. This is not the de facto life. There's many, many lives. You're not in a rush to get there. Ah, it's okay. I'll take care of it next life. People will be like, he's, he's gone mad. The, even the, actually going back to the way of thinking, uh, to achieve something or to become somebody, that the goal-oriented mind itself uh, is very individualistic and also... Um, very materially driven. Yes. And um, it's all by judged by social conception. Yeah. Perception, I should say. Perception. perception. Yeah. And we want these uh, adulation and admiration from other people mm. to boost our ego. Yeah. And, but that's not what the life is about in Hindus. No, no, for some, for some. Well, look at the way that they like. Look at the way that Westerners would look at the life of someone like Steve Jobs. Right? They think of Steve Jobs as great because they value what he offered the world. It's a business perspective, and it's also based on like a like sort of like an Abrahamic view of the world, where you have to uh, have a purpose and you have to provide something for the world. Where the Hindus would be like, but that's just something that he he gave the world. Like, who was Steve Jobs? Because that, that's just the thing he created. We don't see life that way. We don't see that you have to do things to have value in the world. You already have value because you're, you're one with Brahman. And then a Westerner would say, yeah, but shouldn't we have a purpose? It's not that you won't have a purpose. You see it a different way. Though. Purpose, value, these are all business concepts. This is not the way life is. I, I see it this way for me, like, yeah, what would the world look like if we didn't have Steve Jobs, for example? Mm-hmm. Like, well, we won't have technology that we have today, right? Mm-hmm. And um, information that's available and that's out there won't be as um, easily accessible as how we can now. Yeah. But is world going to be much worse than today? No. I don't think so. Yeah. You're just valuing what people do. Yeah. You're not valuing who they are. Oh, Jason and Guy, they, well, if they if people think this is a good podcast, they provide a good podcast. But that's just something that we do. Yeah. You know, we love sharing with everyone, no doubt about it. But that's not what gives us value. This idea of having value and having purpose, that's a Western business-oriented Abrahamic mentality that doesn't equate to eastern spirituality it's not there it's not there your life intrinsically has value because everything is brahman (laughs) like there's no absence of god there's no there's no there's no even other really such foreign concepts yeah for eastern mind yeah Yeah. that's why Mm. there is those frictions in business in India and China and places like that because they don't think about things like that that you know um, 
value and you know of course they have that they understand that notion from western mentality but doesn't change the cultural framework in their in their cognitive state right they still have that cognitive state where these ideas of value and purpose are very foreign like if you look at especially if we look at Taoism, Zhuangzi is saying like having a purpose is useless you know what i mean like he's saying the ones who have purpose are actually the ones who suffer yeah. he actually in some sense mocks the artist and the philosopher and the scholar and and the well-learned he mocks them a little bit you know saying that they will never understand the Tao, they'll never understand the way nature is because they have they're invested in this idea of purpose invested in this idea of that they are an individual that needs to provide value to the world you know like there are many good stories about the good swimmer and um, good carpenter, butcher, yeah, yeah, of course, all yeah. these things. And in the Zhuangzi, the stories, when he was telling these stories of these um, great um, craftsmen, mm. is that they don't consider their skills as um, special. Nor their skill. Yes. Nor themselves. Yeah, nor themselves, yeah. Um, they, the good swimmer, for example, he was born in under circumstances, to, to, uh, born and raised right near the river. Exactly. So he didn't take that his swimming skill as something outstanding or something to show off mm. or as something very special. Um, he took it as a fate that was his, uh, uh, his path for him already been uh, chosen and decided for him. That's yeah. how they thought, whether that's true or not, that's not important. No, of course he not. He thought that he took it that way. Mm. So as a butcher ding, so as the other these craftsmen describe in his book, mm. in his stories. And another thing I really liked about uh, uh, Zhuangzi's Zhuang philosophy is that there is no concept of role model. No, no. That's something very foreign, actually, to today's mm. mind. Mm, mm, mm. You don't have role model, do you? You're a loser. You must have some <laughs> sort of direction, some sort of goal in your life that yeah. you achieve something. Mm, mm. This is how most people think, mm, mm, regardless from Westerners or, or Asians. Yeah. But in, in Zhuangzi philosophy, there is no such thing as a concept of a role model, meaning you do what you do mm -hmm. you do what you like doing for the sake of doing for the sake of doing it yeah he's a good swimmer because he was born and raised near the river and he he, he swims because he had to maybe mm -hmm. to get some food or hunt uh, animals for you know next meal or something mm -hmm. so that's how uh, he's he saw as a what skill to yep. be mm -hmm. There is no role. Yeah, we we want to become a good um, actor, good musician, good writer, whatever. Mm. You have role. Oh, I want to be like him or her. Like, of course, it may give you good motivation, but that's not enough motivation for you to actually put in action. Mm -hmm. It's too completely way of thinking. What you do is what you do. What you want to be someone is just the adulation, admiration, and that's a completely two different thing. And that's very revolutionizing way of thinking that you get out of the mind of having role model. 
but yeah. only sake of your heart, your love, your passion. And you never get exhausted from doing it. Mm. That's why you do it. Mm. And whatever you achieve at the end of the day, at the end of your life or whatever, that's just a byproduct of the whole process. Mm. Well, there's a, there's a fine line, right, between being inspired and becoming a copycat, you know, and having adulation, un, undue adulation for someone. There's a fine line between that, right? Especially like Zhuangzi is trying to tell everyone just be natural and be original. Don't be a copy, you know. Don't uh, don't accumulate the habits and the tendencies of the culture you're in, or don't copy the the skill of another as well. Like using the skill stories in the drunks, right? Like the swimmer and the butcher, and and even looking at the drunk story. You know what I mean? Like looking at those sorts of stories is a sense of also that that's just what I do. That's the Tao. That's how the Tao makes use of me. You know, but there's no sense of a person doing it. You're looking at me as if like I'm, I've been grinding away at this to get value and have purpose. But I became a swimmer because I was living near a river. I'm a good swimmer now. I don't know how I became a good swimmer, but that's the way of the Tao. That's the way of nature. That's, look at the way of nature of anything, right? It's just, it just happens. In some sense, it happens without your conscious participation in some sense. You may say, oh, yeah, I'm learning to, to hold the bow a certain way in violin and, and finger positions and this and that. You're taking it on as your own individual endeavor. But then once the process refines and you become, you know that something else is actually the driving force behind this. It's not Guy Young achieving all of these feats. You know, it's just the process of the Tao refining itself through a skill or through your own whatever it is that you whatever it is that you resonate with and follow in life you know but it, that should not be driven as Zhuangzi would say that should not be driven by a role model like you said it shouldn't you shouldn't have like a template of life and i think that that's what becomes a problem in the west we have a template of life i want to be like that guy or girl i want to be you know i want to be a fantastic musician and this and that and then in the end of the day you might meet those musicians and they're empty and depressed as anyone else. You know, they, they haven't found that spark in life. They haven't found that uh, sense of equanimity within their mind because they're constantly in the habit of searching a purpose and seeking value. So you become a hostage to other people's opinions and other people's perspectives of who you are. When drunks is like, stay as a drunk man, man, fall out of the cart and... <laughs> <laughs> literally and metaphorically he's probably saying be like the drunk man fall out of the cart and just flow with life without having a purpose and having and trying to seek value there's another flaw of having a um, uh, role model is like we just mentioned like it's somewhat like you um, define your future mm. limited on this this figure mm. that you have mm. so that you're you somewhat like uh, already set out your how your future would look like right mm. and that's already kind of um wrong position to be at you got to understand where you're at right now and you need to think in your own turn instead of putting projecting outwardly having a from having a role model and you kind of somewhat limiting yourself to be much bigger than that, probably, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Your version of becoming something or achieving something that you really want to achieve 
might look much more uh, much more different or much more diverse, more, more kind, might be much more going beyond that. Mm-hmm. You don't know how it's going to look like. Right. And that's what uh, we often mistake. Well, that's what we were talking about before, right? Where life has its own way. Has its own, the Tao and Brahman has its own agenda. And it's beyond our comprehension of why it is. But when you surrender to that and you allow life just to do as it is, you'll be where you were. But you, but having a purpose and trying to seek value is counterintuitive to, to that way of life. You know, I had a friend in, in high school and he was always saying to me, I'm going to be a millionaire by 19. He's 40 now. And, you know, <laughs> so you can have a projection of life and think that you're going to control the way that it's going to go according to your own subjective perspective but it's we know it's not going to work like that it doesn't work like that you know there's something else driving life and it's only in surrendering to that to that you come into harmony with it it doesn't mean that you're going to get great blessings and this and that on an individual level it just means that whatever it needs from you in life will happen and if it doesn't need anything from you it won't happen it does people have got to get out of this idea of like this blessed blessed mentality that oh, he's blessed and he has value and you know all of these things that are not part of the eastern mentality especially if you're into eastern spirituality because that's not related to nature right eastern spirituality is related to nature nature doesn't have a idea of who who is blessed and who is not ask a, a, a young deer running in the savannah if, a, if it feels blessed being chased by a lion this is just nature and that's the way nature is. And we, as humans, because we have a high state of consciousness and we have a prefrontal cortex that can discern between this and that, we often get ahead of ourselves and we think that we are somewhat different than the deer in the savannah. But we're not. We're just another creature and species on the planet. We are a part of nature. And Eastern spirituality is about getting your mind back into that state. You are no more special than that deer or even an ant. You're an aspect of the one consciousness expressing itself. Sure, you're a human and it's a, a great opportunity to be in this form because you can do many things, right? And you can understand the world a certain way in this, that, that an ant can't, for example. But an ant, we've got to also think, understands a different world than you and I. It has a different sense of reality, you see? So our sense of reality is not the de facto sense of reality. Yeah, exactly. Like We sometimes, we sometimes talk about this, like... When we see uh, like a lizard, there are a lot of lizards in Australia, mm. in the parks and all that. They're all wild, mm. and like they just sit there and staring at something. You know, there are the pupils moving here and there and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder what he's really thinking or seeing <laughs> or mm. his version of life and reality must. It is completely different from ours. Hundred percent. Yeah. Because you imagine, if I, I could take your state of consciousness, put it in his and his and yours, you would just freak out. Because it'd be completely two different things. Maybe his sense of reality is way better than what we think. You know, because we think that ours is the, the, the primo sense of reality. We think this is the piece de la resistance. This is, you know, this is the, this is the best, best, the best. best one out there. But when you see it from an Eastern perspective, it's a version of Brahman. It's not the version of Brahman, you see. And so maybe the lizard and yourself 
are both affected by the illusion of Maya, the illusion of separation, and you are in an opportunity to kind of transcend that much more than the lizard. But we don't really know that too, right? We don't really know that too. The lizard may be in a state of unified consciousness most of the time until another lizard annoys it, you know. So we can't discount that too. Yeah, definitely. We, yeah, there are so many different versions of um, reality. Yeah. And again, that translates to um, belief system, what yes. we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, we need to kind of lose our grip in a way that um, psychological grip, mm -hmm. we need to let it be loose a little bit and allow it to keep a space a little bit to, you know, like exercise a little bit, you know. Of course. Yeah. Usually when you do loosen the grip, that's when you actually learn a lot about uh, the world, actually, you know how much of you and I learned from putting ourselves in different cultures and, mm. and you and I don't really have much of a connection to the cultures that we were brought up in. So it's very easy for you and I to, to go into different cultures and learn from them and learn from the psychology of the people and, and that actually enhances your life and, and, you know, allows you to see life better and allows you to become more humble and, and, uh, effortlessly guiding through other cultures and without disturbing life you know yeah from being that way and having that attitude is actually life becomes much less of a burden and less stress mm. i think obviously you have a rigid idea and perception of the world and you try to uphold and try to live in that way it gives you such immense stress and you've kind of have to force to be that way because life always has its way to push you around somewhat mm. and instead of you are um, being accept accepting it and be recept receptible to, to that reality you try to um, make it in a certain way so that you we are putting ourselves much more pressure and stress which is I think it's very unnecessary. And that is also coming from that, you know, that one way of thinking and reality, like in all this Abrahamic religion um, supporting, like yes. this, this a certain way of thinking and this is good, this is bad, and you're supposed to think that way or this way and that kind of um, way of thinking gives you such, such stress to your life. Exactly. Well, there's a talk by, uh, you've watched it before, by Sam Harris about um, the Christian view of Hindus, right? And it's an eye-opening uh, lecture for anyone. Anyone out there, you can probably find it on YouTube. It's uh, basically highlighting that one cultural perspective over another, which is it's damaging, yeah. you know what I mean? Because that from that view, the Hindus are... You know, they they are out of sync with the the Christian perspective of how life is, right? And so they are sort of what would you call them? Like heathens? Like they are not they are not followers of Christ, and they they so they're like almost evil. Like just from being like so that some innocent Hindu who who lives on not much money and hasn't been exposed to Christianity, like what Sam points out in the the lecture because they haven't been exposed to christianity they themselves are evil which doesn't make sense like there's some sort of twisted god that you are supporting right 
Like, so why, why would a God that's all loving and all caring for all creatures make some sort of twisted game where there's an isolated group of, there's an isolated culture and race of people that is out of sync with another one and, and they themselves are bad. But they had no, they had no choice. They were born Hindu. Mm. They were born in India. Yeah. It's a pretty twisted game, right? We know that that's an incorrect way of seeing. Like anyone intelligent knows that that's stupid and that's what Sam points out in the lecture. But that highlights the cultural differences that we need to understand, you know what I mean? Like, and those firm fundamentalist perspectives in the Abrahamic faiths, I, I, I do agree with Sam Harris in a sense, they have to be reevaluated because any form of fundamentalism is dangerous, right? It, can lead, it will lead to violence. It will lead to violence. If you don't understand that your tradition and your religion is based on a certain mythology, but it is not the mythology of the world. It's a certain subjective truth of reality. It's not the truth of the world. Yes, yeah, so that perspective that one may have of other cultures also lends to this or leans into this concept of evil, right? That there's an opposition, they are evil, and we should seek to convert them or, in a sense, eradicate them, right? This is where you have the birth of a missionary because a missionary has a subjective truth that they think they should inculcate in other people. Right, So this is the birth of a missionary, birth of someone who is trying to influence the world. And this is why we've had Christian missionaries, especially, f forever and a day, right? Because they have this belief that other cultures, Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and so forth and so on, are not, are not a child of God, which from a Hindu perspective is the most outrageous thing you'd ever say. He's not a child of God. So what are you saying? He's soulless. He's a soulless entity. That's it's very for a very foreign concept for them. Yeah, it's a strange, strange yeah. way of seeing the world, yeah. right? Mm. Um, yeah, but whatever religion that you believe in, or whatever religion you follow, when it becomes fundamental beliefs within yourself, I think there are certain psychosis will happen. Mm. I mean, we talked about this before mm. that. Um, again, under Christian belief that you do certain things and you get forgiven um, and whatever you do good, you um, thank God and things like that. But in the part that when you don't take your own accountability and you confess and you know that you will be forgiven under their belief system, that's somewhat psychotic to me. Like, and you think that um, your version of reality and belief is uh, the truth for them, mm. so that uh, they need they feel this uh, urge to spread the words to other nations mm -hmm. to um, yeah convert them into that um, way of um, belief system. Mm. And it creates uh, such conflict within ourselves and it becomes more uh, psychotic um, issue. Yeah, because that's the cultural difference, right? That's still the belief that, that evil exists. Mm. So that Christian missionary believes that 
people are lost until they find Christ. Mm. They're, they're lost. They're, they <clears throat> can only be saved. It's this whole idea of salvation, which is a foreign concept in, in Eastern spirituality because there's, there's no such thing as being saved because you're already part of God. There's no separation, right? So it's its own tradition. You know, this is what I think Abrahamic faiths don't understand. They, they obviously don't understand because when it leads into a missionary, when you become a missionary, you're a sense, in some sense, a fanatic because you're trying to influence other people with the, your own way of seeing the world, right? And that's there's a fine line becoming an extreme fundamentalist and being a missionary because you are under the hypnosis that your way of seeing the world is the way of seeing the world, and that's not true from a, from a realistic perspective that's not the way it actually is there are different cultural beliefs and subjective truths and so we know christians who are who are really good people who aren't fundamentalists and who just follow the path and are who actually uh friendly with other religions right there's many like that but then there's this growing uh, mentality in the world which has been happening for a few hundred years where there's this very fundamentalist missionary like perspective where other people are are not are not part of God or are soulless to a certain degree and you see this which has happened in India a lot right where uh, especially Christians have gone to India and have tried to convert Hindus and in some sense have undermined Hindus because of Hindus inclusive nature because again this is a cultural difference right so Christians are, have an exclusive perspective of the world there are Christians and then there are the non-believers where Hindus is just like everyone is all Brahman. So even if you have a different religious path, it's all good. It's all part of the same thing. So, and we appreciate your religious path, which is the mentality we all should have for each and every religious path. We, this idea of conversion should, in some sense, from an intelligent perspective, should not happen. Because if we are intelligent, you wouldn't want to convert anyone to your own belief system. You're either brought up in that or you become attracted to it. That's the way of nature, right? The way of the way things happen. So, but if you're running around the world trying to convert people because you think that you see the world in the correct way, then that's the wrong way of actually seeing the world. Like, you you are in a sense hypnotized into your own jiva. You're, you're hypnotized by your own jiva, your own way of seeing the world, and your cultural perspective is completely different than the Hindus. So that's why, especially in recent times. Um, some Hindus have become very, uh, in some sense, uh, opposed to uh, Christianity and Islam in, in India in, in modern day because some people have realized that other religions have taken advantage of their inclusive nature. You know, So that's why you see this whole thing in India of um, the progressives versus the, the so-called conservative Hindus. I'm not saying that they're conservative, but that's the way that progressive progressive people see them, right? They they see uh, Hindus, some Hindus, as right wing fundamentalists, and and the, the left wingers are the ones who, you know, ironically, who sympathise with Marxism and, and communism, which is really strange, right? Where we seeing Kerala, where uh, the Kerala government, being communist, uh, have. Uh, almost anti-Hindu and you see this with them um, destroying Hindu temples and stuff like this which is very strange when you think about it but uh, so that's that's the I think 
the Hindu mentality in India has has identified that this conversion thing is actually a bit of a problem. And it doesn't matter which way you want to see that. That's the reality it is. Like, it has become a problem. And it is a problem where you see, like, if we look at the Pacific Islands, right? Pacific Islands had a culture, but now it's basically Christian. I mean, there's still the culture, but really they're fundamentally Christian. Like, there's, they will take Christianity over their own uh, cultural uh, tendencies and beliefs. In, in, in general, I'm saying. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, uh, just they because of their innocent nature, yeah. those people take their Christian belief to their heart. I mean, which is uh, in a sense good for um, their spiritual spiritual practice and spiritual growth. But um, the intention of missionaries and going there and to try to convert people itself is, I think, it's a different um, story. It's a different story altogether, yes, right? Yes. If they naturally find Christianity and they naturally resonate with it, that's all well and good. That's mm-hmm. great. But if someone is in the street trying to convert you and, and telling you that if you believe in Shiva or Vishnu that you are going to hell, that becomes problematic, right? Especially when the most of India is Hindu. Like that's... It's insensitive to the culture. That's right. It's insensitive to the culture because Hindus don't come from from a conversion perspective unless you're a part of Ishkon, you know, the Hare Krishnas. But in general, the main Hindu, the the majority of Hindus don't have a conversion mentality. They, they, that's why you don't see Hindus in the street, you know, giving out the Gita or the Upanishads or, or so forth and so on because um, it's such a complex philosophy to 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 explain to people. Um, but but you wouldn't see it because they have that inclusive perspective. They don't have an exclusive sense. It's converting their own traditions to other foreign people itself is a completely um, diff- the foreign concept mm. under Hinduism. Yeah, yeah. There is no such thing. No such thing. There, there is no such. It would like being idea. saying like a Buddhist is going to go and convert people. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. <laughs> doesn't make any yeah, sense. it doesn't. You know yeah. what I mean? Or a Dallas is going to hit the streets, and it's like yeah, yeah, converting um, people and giving out Tao Te Ching. <laughs> <laughs> it's it a little makes, strange. It makes zero sense mm-hmm. because, like, that's completely against the way of the Tao. Exactly. The way of the Tao is just to allow life to be as it will. Mm. And then someone may say, "Yeah, but that also counts to we should allow the missionaries to be as they will." But if they followed the natural way, the Taoist way, they wouldn't have a tendency mm. to go out and convert people. Mm. That's the way it is because it's, it's a path of non-interference. Eastern spirituality is the path of inclusiveness and the path of non-interference. So when you have an exclusive mentality, you are naturally going to think that other things are in opposition to you. And so you have to... Uh, it, it's called demographic swamping, right? So that mentality of demographic swamping, of swamping a part of the world with your belief system is beneficial to your, the survival of your, of your own beliefs, right? This, is, this has been studied in, in uh, cultural evolution and cognitive science. And so, that's, they, that's, so those survival tendencies are superimposed onto your belief system and then so then you try to propagate those belief systems onto other parts of the world. That's what demographic swamping is. And so... The Hindus have never really done that. The, the Buddhists and the Jains and the Taoists have never done that because that goes against the mentality and the psychology 
of the East. Sure, people will say, wasn't Shankara a missionary? He was to a certain degree, you know what I mean? He, he walked up and down India numerous times speaking about, especially Advaita Vedanta, because Advaita Vedanta had been lost, not sort of lost within the, the Hindu psyche. But that, in some sense, is not also missionary because he was almost preaching to the choir. You know, so he's preaching to people who are already Hindu. You know what I mean? So he's, he, he was more so a, you could say a reformer, but also a, an educator of the deeper aspects of uh, the, 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 the Vedic essence of Hinduism. So, so he wasn't in the sense of a missionary in the sense of that we would think of it like in the modern day, right? So where you have, which you have, I have seen many times Christians and, Thailand and in India and Nepal. You know, there was that real tragic time in Nepal where they were basically, you know, emphasizing that the Nepalis are, are going to hell if they don't convert. And it's it's a really troubling scene to to see. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean when we see that, uh, like uh, we just something in the gut don't feel right. Yeah. And um, when we see it, I always question that uh, what their real intention is, really. Yeah. Mm. It's about getting numbers. It's about being the number one religion in the world. Mm. It's about not being content and being peaceful with the situation you're in. And that goes for any religion, not just Christianity. If you're, if you're out there and you're trying to convert others and this and that, you are, in, you are under the belief that your subjective truth is the truth. And you are, in a, in a sense causing conflict unnecessary conflict you know because majority of the time as we go through history most people don't get converted some do but most people don't right so there's a cause of in a sense like a a resentment happens within those cultures what has happened in india is a resentment towards christianity because of the Christian's contempt for Hindu and Buddhist and Jain and Sikh beliefs. There is a content, a, a contempt that is there, um, which shouldn't be there, you know what I mean? If, if we all understood each, each other from a cultural perspective, there wouldn't be this, this sense of contempt, yeah, right? Yeah, I find it interesting that um, the, the people who are preaching Christianity is not, Somewhat, they are somewhat under the belief that Christianity will help those people, mm. but probably more likely to, uh, from converting those people to to become a Christian, their own agenda gets uh, spread out mm-hmm. more, so mm-hmm. that uh, their survival in, uh, gets protected. It, yeah, that's how it's interesting how it's linked to their own survival mentality yes yes instead of truly they are really supporting those people's well-being mm-hmm. from what you are uh, pre- uh, preaching from what you're preaching yeah. yeah it's so that it's to sum up yeah it's for your own self-interest it is for your own self-interest yeah, yeah. your intention is to uh, benefit yourself not to others yeah yeah. And what a lot of people don't understand that who are following this path of fundamentalism and conversion is that usually when you convert a different culture to a certain belief system, 
they don't download that belief system exactly how you give it to them mm. because there are cognitive differences and there are cultural differences that, that consider like like for example if you look at christianity in india it's really different than christianity in europe because the framework of christianity doesn't adapt to the cultural perspective and the cognitive view of the indian so it, it kind of gets adapted to mm. that you know and you see this in a sense with also with um eastern spirituality going into the west this is how you have this is how you have new age spirituality because new age spirituality is eastern spirituality seen through an individualistic lens it's seen through a self-interested exclusive lens because that's the perspective that's the cognitive style of the west right and there's nothing wrong with that but you can't understand the essence of eastern spirituality if you are looking at it from a western cultural and cognitive perspective like i said earlier in the podcast you have to come to that perspective with a complete empty mind and you have to understand the psychology of the people why i always emphasize for people to travel to the east and you have to understand the um obviously the philosophy behind the that uh, cognitive and cultural perspective so those things are imperative to understand a certain culture and so you can't understand that un until you understand that and so when we have when you have that way of thinking where you think that i'm just going to give them the tablet and they're going to see it exactly the way i see it doesn't work that way this is what radical universalism is right, right. radical universalism is this perspective where we all have the same we all think the same and we all have the same cultural assumptions but that's a that's a false assumption right so evil itself which began this process of uh, especially of radical universalism amongst traditions was kind of the first false assumption that exist that was somehow thought was a cultural perspective of all cultures it wasn't it wasn't you know like in the Tao Te Ching they Lao Tzu's not saying that there's he's not saying there's any evil he's saying when you identify with beauty you instantly create ugly when you so you're you are categorizing the world and as soon as you start to categorize the world that's when you create opposition the impartial view of the world the natural view of the world is is impartial there is no up or down there is no beautiful or ugly these are all subjective viewpoints you know that's not the way nature actually is there is no this and that right so when you create evil you instantly create good yeah. when you create good you instantly create evil do you see you're creating opposition constantly yeah. you're in a partial perspective an exclusive reality mm. when reality is impartial and inclusive i i was looking at some books that i wanted to read and one of these um the book i found was by david bomb it was called wholeness and uh, implicit order think it's mm. called cool. i just read a little a few pages and it says exactly something like what you were talking about how people like to um categorize things and split things and mm. uh, and just to make a clear cut between things and this mm. and that but he made a really clear point that while we are doing it we never acknowledge ourselves who are actually doing it mm. it's fragmented yes like it's, it's crazy yeah. that's it's so like for me it was pretty um kind of wolf kind of moment we always like to dissect things this is cup this is that and this is whatever 
But we always, we almost like a kind of skip, like a blind spot. We always leave the blind spot, uh, the place where we don't get to see ourselves who are actually split it, yeah. fragmented. Yes. But that's the where the problem begins. That's the mind and conscious conscious effort to make uh, things categorized. Yes. And that's the uh, cause, very cause of this uh, phenomena, which we need to actually uh, bring it back to, and uh, focus on. Mm. That, yeah, we, uh, us ourselves are fragmented and we need to collect ourselves back together <laughs> to be able to, you know, non-categorize things all the time and analyze everything, uh, bits and pieces. Yes. And wholeness is the perfect word, right? I mean, we could say oneness, but wholeness is the perfect word. You take in, your consciousness has become holistic. You see the world wholly, not wholly as in the sense of religious, but wholly as in the whole reality. That means your perspective is impartial. Like you said, you're not fragmented. And this, that goes to the Zhuangzi, right? When, the Zhuangzi, when, when Zhuangzi mentions Qing, when he mentions the species-specific essence about ourselves that is flawed, that's part in the prefrontal cortex that cuts reality up into pieces and then categorizes and this and that. That in itself is a flaw because yes. you're not seeing the whole. And this is why we've spoke about in many podcasts that the individual itself is limited. And so when you are speaking from a limited place, you can only cause conflict. We have fallen for this hypnosis that in division we find security. But division itself creates insecurity because you're seeing the world in a divided manner and you haven't seen the world as a whole. When you see the world as a whole, then you don't fall for these divisional mentalities. It doesn't mean that we won't have Christians and Muslims and Hindus and so forth and so on, but it means that you know that your subjective truth is not the truth. It means that you see the world impartially. I may be Hindu, but... Uh, my Christian brothers and sisters are still a part of this one reality. I'm not in opposition to them. And same, likewise for the Christians. They see the Hindu brothers and sisters. They know, they know that as well. They may resonate with their certain belief system, and that's all good. That's well and good. That's what, you know, it's, it's good to have diversity. But we need to ha have an understanding that if you're dividing the reality up according to your own fragmented perspective, that can only create, create conflict and suffering in the world. That's the deeper reality, right? Especially for the spiritual practitioner, no matter what faith, or if you're not even, even for atheists, whatever mentality you have, that's the role on the path of liberation is that your version of reality, if you have a version of reality, if you're not, as, if you're not a Jiva Mukta, then you are seeing it from a fragmented perspective if you have a version of if you have a version of reality so the spiritual path is to see the world as a whole mm. you know and then things like up and down good and bad these things don't exist yes. yeah we need to bring ourselves back into that sort of um realm that yeah place where you see everything as whole and Again, Krishnamurti was talking about this, that there is only one consciousness. Mm. That not just him, like all in the traditional mm. uh, Eastern um, spirituality, that there is only one consciousness. Mm. And 
these uh, differences pop up as a part of it, like it's just the waves in the ocean, mm. the same thing. Mm. Yeah. So we need to be able to be in that place and see from that place. And to be able to do it, we need to, again, yeah, look to our own fragment, fragmented psychology. Yeah, well, fragmented is a perfect word what you're using because mm. fragmented means you're broken. Yes. And the part of spirituality is you're putting yourself back together. That's right. <laughs> you're making yourself whole again mm. instead of seeing the world separate and this and this this and that mentality. You can't reside in the still point at in the center of the Tao, as Zhuangzi mentions. You cannot do that if you're from a this and that fragmented sense of reality. It can never happen. And that's see the thing is that we're constantly. So we were talking about missionaries and that before, right? We're constantly in this idea of helping others, but we're not in this mentality, as you know, with an Eastern spirituality, helping yourself. Not in a self-interested way here. Talking about understanding yourself. In, in understanding yourself, then you understand the world. That's right. Right? So we're going out there, like you said, with a fragmented perspective, trying to help the world, but you already are broken. Yeah. You are trying to help others who are likely broken, and you're broken as well. So all that can happen is conflict. Well, that's all that can happen. And that's what's happening. That's what has been happening throughout the history. Yes. Mm. It's only those rare souls, those rare beings that see the world holistically, that we, we actually know their name. Lao Tzu, Zhuangzi, Gautama the Buddha, Shankara, Ramana Maharshi, Gaudapada, you name it. You know what I mean? We know those individuals who have put themselves back together and that's why their name lives on forever. So when we talk about, and talking about what we've been talking about, when we talk about radical universalism, we have to, and we, when we talk about evil, we have to see things culturally from a different cultural perspective, not our own cultural perspective. If we were whole, as you were mentioning, then we would be able to see from, every, from each and everyone's perspective. And you would have that mentality of Zhuangzi of free and easy wandering. If we could all be like that, Shanti, there'd be no conflict in the world, right? And we would all just get along with life and help each other out best as we can um, on this path. And so uh, radical universalism, it's a tr tricky thing because, um, especially, you know, we'll end on this note, but like um, a lot of the cultures a lot of the spiritual paths in the modern day have fallen for this idea that all paths lead to the same god and we know that that's not true i mean maybe true from a sense that from a maybe an intuitive uh mm. felt of experience but when we t look at it from the the scriptures and we look at it uh from a cultural perspective it's completely different like the concepts within the different traditions are different so for example Hindus would think of Brahman, right? But Brahman doesn't exist in the Abrahamic faiths. They have an idea of a, a God that has commandments and, and, and judges and that. Brahman doesn't do that. It's just an ultimate reality that you can come back into accord with and that's where you feel bliss and, you know, but you have to transcend your jiva to, to get to that state, to, to come back to the Atman, right? So what's crept into a lot of especially even some eastern spiritual paths is that there's this radical universalism where it's all in some sense the same you see this with the ramakrishna mission 
the Vedanta Society, they, they talk about this. One thing that the Vedanta Society do well is the idea of interfaith harmony, which I, I also support as well. We, also, we all should support that, right? There's nothing more ridiculous when fundamentalists, religious fundamentalists are in opposition with each other, everything that we've been talking about today, right? So if you had interfaith harmony, you wouldn't have any conversion or any fundamentalism around the world because you would understand different people's uh, cultural and conceptual frameworks according to their own religions, right? You would understand it and appreciate it and, and you either resonate with it or you don't, you know what I mean? There will be philosophical debates and so forth and so on. They, will, they may remain, but you, it wouldn't lead into fundamentalist behaviours, you know. So that's one thing that has kind of crept in where people start to think that or start to fall for this idea that all religions are the same and, and they're not. And, and they don't have to be, you know. This whole idea of sameness is a, is a strange phenomenon from, from modern culture where we try to simplify things and think that things are all the same. It's like... No, the modern day is more diverse than ever. More diverse than ever. Yeah, and all different cultures come out to the surface and it's a good opportunity to acknowledge those diversity that exists around the world mm. and to be able to accept the differences yeah. from each other. I have to acknowledge that those differences exist. Yep. And, it's not, and that's what's great, mm. actually, you know. That's what makes the world interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine if it was all mm. the same. But we can't project that sameness onto religions. Like the thing is that when you, especially when you study religion, you know, my background's in comparative religion, and when you study it and you see the evolution of religions, you know that it's, they're bound to different cultures, they have different conceptual frameworks, different worldviews. So there's no way that their idea of the world can be exactly the same. You know what I mean? Maybe their felt experiences can be the same, maybe. But when you look at like an Avaduta or a Jivan Mukta in Hinduism, you know that those extreme paths are not entertained in any other spiritual path in the world. Like an Avaduta or a Jivan Mukta, I mean, you're going full hectic in the dissolution of the eye. Mm. It's probably, which we will talk about in another episode, but it's probably um, something that a lot of us are not willing to. That's that's what I've yeah, asked. Poor um, <laughs> renunciation. Yeah, yeah. You don't find that in any other spiritual path. So, which doesn't make it better or worse than any other path. It just means that there are these cultural adaptations and there are these different conceptual frameworks that we need to appreciate. Radical universalism doesn't exist. Interfaith harmony, on the other hand, is a different story. Having interfaith harmony is something that we all should support, but falling for the illusion that all religions are the same is a different different kettle of fish you know a lot of people may read the perennial philosophy by aldous huxley but see it in, from that sense you know which is the wrong way to see the perennial philosophy you know so yeah you need to see it from the wholeness yes mm. you have to see it from the wholeness you have to understand that yeah that seen it from the wholeness you understand all in each and every tradition and their differences and and in the period perennial philosophy all the quotes that he was using they were more so like a mystics back in yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. About 15th and 16th centuries very long time long ago time. and they weren't 
these um, organized uh, Christian um, belief or anything like that. They no, there was probably were, no evangel evangelical. No, no, they no, they were much more agnostic. They were mystic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, mystic, mystic Christianity has a yes. Is, is has very deep, right? Yes. Huxley's talking more about the mystics in general when he's talking about the perennial. That's right. Perennial philosophy. Even mystics of Islam, which are Sufis. The Sufis, yeah, yeah, yeah. From that perspective, he's talking about perennial philosophy. Yeah, mm. yeah. Not from cultural and conceptual frameworks. No, no. So, but I think a lot of people do confuse that because it can be mm. confusing if, you're not, if, you, if you don't understand what we've been talking about today because people do believe that evil exists and this and that. And, and you know, to just carry on a little bit more, like to, when we look at evil, when you look at that as a, or trying to find that as a concept within the East, if you look at Menches and you look at Lao Tzu, everything, everyone is intrinsically fundamentally good and that's how they were born. And actually when you look at that from a realistic perspective, that is true. Our nature, which we have a podcast, one of the early podcasts, our nature has been warped. And that's when we lead into what we were talking about, this fragmented sense of self, and we don't see the world whole, and we, our, our consciousness is not whole. We, don't, we, are not res, we are not in contact with the one consciousness. We're in contact only with the jiva. And so we have a self-interested perspective. But as Manchus and Lao Tzu would say, that we are fundamentally good from birth socialization and the culture and the religion that you're brought up with is beyond your control that's where it's problematic that's where it's problematic that's where a genghis khan can come from genghis khan even was fundamentally good but he became genghis khan through you know the process of life you know he wasn't born the tyrant he became the tyrant you know. Yeah. Well, I don't know too much about him, but I know that he was born in a very poor background. They had no father or mm. something, mm. and mm. so he come from this sort of a very lack uh, environment and yes, yes. become. You would naturally uh, want to have more things, right? Yeah, you yeah, want to yeah. have power and material possessions and whatnot. That kind of uh, his background must have um, built his own condition and way of thinking and whatnot. That, yeah. so like we can said, sort of speculate about yes, that. Yeah. Yes, yes. So like he became who he became. Yeah. Yeah. He had lack and then he owned half the world. Well, that's what he wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but that's, you know, we can only speculate as to how his evolution as an individual that's developed. Right. Mm. But sure, what you're saying all contributed to it. You know what I mean? But at the same time, there are different things that happen within the environment that contribute to that. Like, for example, if you look at, we know, especially in rural India, a lot of people lack, mm. but the people are so shanti and, and more peaceful than people in Western-educated societies. Yeah. And actually, in some sense, like what Sadhguru says, more intelligent. Their intelligence is a different intelligence. The, something I, I have a problem with the how... The Western people or the strong Christian people who have strong Christian belief uh, is that they 
think that the place like uh, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, or some um, third world Asian countries, mm. they think those uh, uh, people in those nations are uncivilized or less civilized. It's ridiculous. That's a very uh, wrong way of thinking. Contemptuous I, as well. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, And I have actually a problem with that because those people often never been those countries first of all no. and they never had a direct in experience of exchanging um, conversations or whatnot with those people mm. and they just having a broad judgment over them because that's not true at all mm. in our experience they were somewhat much more mm, civilized mm. they know how to behave and they know how to treat guests mm. and they know how to help one another and they know how to live with one another. And to our experience, they're very um, civilized mm. and well-mannered, intelligent, like mm. you said. So, yeah, that's just, we need to come out of that uh, one way of uh, looking at things. Well, you, you know this, but every time people ask you and I, like Guyang and Jason, like you've learned from you know all these teachers and you've been in spiritual communities and, and all of these things in the past and you've been connected with all of this for so long like who have you learned the most from and then when you tell them i learned the most from the people on the ground the rural people in india nepal thailand um, they they seem a bit puzzled they seem puzzled <laughs> no, I, I say they're my great teachers and they're like what are you talking about you learn from all of these masters and this and that what you don't know what these people have to teach you. You know, I mean, they teach you a lot of things about, especially about yourself. Mm. You know, what I mean, you come from all of these, you know, these first world problems that we have, and and this way of seeing the world that we think it is. And then when you go to the third world and you're on the ground level, and you're sharing a a, a five rupee tea with the coconut guy who's just chopping coconuts all day off the off the tree, yeah. and then you share a real peaceful moment of silence mm. together you learn more from that you know what i mean and the way that they look at you with sincere innocence and actually pure love for the other person without a, an opinion of how you should be that's how you learn there's no preconceived judgments of other people you know that's who well that's who we've learned most yeah. from right? absolutely yeah that's why we love it living in close that's to close to those or within those sorts of places yeah. so you know that's something for everyone to think about but that comes to, back to what we were talking about too the cultural um view and you and i have been fortunate because we've lived in those sorts of cultures for so long so anyway <laughs> so we covered most of that. Yeah. There's so many things you talk about evil, right? Yeah. Evil, you can talk a lot about the concept of evil, the concept of radical fundamentalism, uh, radical universalism, sorry. We, we, we went here, there, and everywhere on that mm. and probably revisit again one day. But we all need to remember, you know, in conclusion, we all need to remember that our sense of reality is not the reality. Our cultural assumptions are not the assumptions. Yeah. Having a cultural assumption of evil is still an assumption and actually is a false assumption in eastern spirituality evil is a false assumption in spiritual eastern spirituality because we don't live in eastern spirituality in one de facto life we have many lives mm. 
and there is karma and there is reincarnation. So this concept of evil does not exist. doesn't matter about your cultural sensibilities about it. You can disagree with what you and, you and I are talking about now, but that doesn't matter. That's the, that's the cultural perspective of the East. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you want to agree or not. That's it's, the way it it's is. It's just the way it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So what we need to learn is to learn the way it is. So I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you guys next week.